Imagine, imagine if Michael Jordan had stopped playing basketball after he was cut from his freshman team for not being good enough. Imagine if Thomas Edison gave up on learning when his teachers told him that he was too stupid to learn anything. Imagine if Beethoven stopped composing when his teachers said he lacked talent and he became deaf. Imagine if Rosa Parks didn't stand by her convictions and stand up in her convictions and move to the back of the bus. Just imagine. Imagine if Abraham Lincoln had given up on life after his fiance died, after Abraham Lincoln had two failed businesses, after Abraham Lincoln had a nervous breakdown, and after Abraham Lincoln was defeated in eight elections. Imagine if Walt Disney stopped creating when his critic told him he didn't have an original thought or a creative idea. Imagine if Martin Luther King never had a dream. Imagine if Moses gave up on God after every time he went and was obedient, Pharaoh told him, no, I will not let your people go. Imagine if Jesus never came in the form of a baby, never lived a blameless life, never took that cross, bearing our shame, bearing our burdens, carrying our sins, never crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine if Jesus had stayed in that grave, had stayed buried, had stayed dead, and had stayed gone if Jesus hadn't rose three days later to conquer death, to give us life, what would it mean for the world today? What would it mean for you? What would it mean for me, for us, for our community? Would anything be different? Could anything be the same? What would it mean? Just imagine. My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the staff members here at Country Bible Church. I just want to welcome you to church this morning. We're so glad that you're here. And if you're here for the first time, I want to give you a special welcome to all of our first-time guests. It's not lost on us that there are a lot of other places that you could be or other things that you could be doing. And so the fact that you're here worshiping with us, we celebrate that and we say thank you. For those of you who are joining us live on our online community, we want to welcome you as well. We love that you guys are able to check in on video. And if you've never taken the time to come and check out our physical location, we would certainly invite you to come. We'd love to have you as well. Let me invite you up front to grab Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We would love to gift you one. Our ushers are coming forward now and all we invite you to do is raise your hand and that lets our ushers know that you're interested in a Bible or you need a Bible and they're happy to give you a Bible. These Bibles are yours to have and to keep. They're our gift to you. Now, we have a strong conviction here, a passion that everything we do is from sola scriptura, from the word of God alone, and we want everyone to have the word of God in their hands. The word of God, for your convenience, is also going to come up on the screen behind me here momentarily. As you're turning to Matthew 25, you may be wondering where that is, and I want to help you just a little bit. If you were to turn right in the middle of your Bible and turn to the right a few books in, you're going to hit the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and then you're going to run into a, a series of names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also known as the Gospels, or the recording of the good news, Jesus' life. And Matthew is the first one. We'll be in Matthew 25. As 
I do often, I want to do again today. I want to set today up, kind of viewing where we've been from a 30,000 foot view and then giving some culture and context for what we're going to read today. Six weeks ago today, we launched a new series entitled At My Church. We started week one with looking at our identity. We discovered quickly that we have a clear mission from Jesus to love God with every fiber of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we discovered that we have a collective mission as the church to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. But what we also quickly learned, church, is that each church has its own unique footprint, its own identity. And so we began the task of discovering together what our identity is as a church. Why do we exist? And what we shared, what we talked through, what we discovered as we read John chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at a well, was that we exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. That's who we are. That's why we do everything that we do. We saw through Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman that when she came to a realization and an understanding of her encounter with Jesus, the person of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, who he was and what he was, that it changed her life. So much, though, that it drove her into a community where she had been ostracized, marginalized, and outcast. And she was compelled to share her new life through Jesus with others. And it changed the way that community viewed Jesus. Week two, we identified that there are our core values that we appreciate as a church. There are core values that we hold to, things that define us and make up who we are. And there's a lot of core values that we stand by. But that there are really four significant core values that drive us in everything we do. That in every ministry of our church, in every gathering we have, every time we come together, there are four things that are going to drive our identity. And we looked at the first one being that, that at my church we gather. We're committed to gathering and we gather for three reasons. We gather to encourage one another. We gather to exalt the name of Jesus together. And we gather to equip the saints to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now whether that's here at our celebration service on a Sunday or it's midweek in one of our ministries or it's in one of our life groups or it's in an accountability group or maybe a men's study or a women's study, we gather together so that we can encourage, exalt, and equip. Week three, we looked at the core value here at our church of our core four, that at my church we grow, that we grow in our knowledge, we're committed to growing in our understanding, we're committed to growing in our application of the word of God and the, the principles of God applied to our lives, that we grow not only in word, but we grow in deed, we grow in our relationships with one another, we grow as we live out the life that Jesus has called us to live, and we grow in relationships in our accountability groups and, 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 and beyond. Week four, we looked at our third core value, that at my church we give. And we talked about not just giving church, but we talked about a being a church that is known for our radical generosity. That we give in such a way that, that, that it leaves an impression on the world at large. We talked about three very practical ways that we're committed to giving at our church. That at my church we give with our time. At my church we give with our talents. And at my church we give with our treasures. Last night, we experienced the fourth of our core four, which is at my church we go. That we go and we looked at 
the bridegroom and excuse me, the, the, the wedding feast and how the master of the ceremony wanted to throw this big party, this big celebration. And so he sends out his servant to give an invitation and he goes to the socialites. And when these individuals turn him down and give him three what we discovered to be very lame excuses, that servant comes back to the master of the ceremony and tells him what happens. And that master then with a deep sense of urgency becomes furious and he sends him out to go the streets where the marginalized are at, where the misrepresented are at, where the misplaced are at, and where the mistreated are at, and to invite them into the banquet, to invite them to the party, to invite them into a seat at the table. When the servant does as the master is instructed, the servant comes back to the master of the ceremony and says, I've done what you've asked. They're here, but there's still room. There's still room at the table. And the, 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 the master of the ceremony says, then go further. Go out into the country roads, into the dirt roads. Go into the dark alleys. You go into even the furthest distances and you pick up the underside of the branches and the, the brush and, and, and the bushes and the hedges and you intentionally look for everyone that you can find and invite them to the table. And we talked about how as long as there's still room at the table, we have an obligation and an opportunity to go. And we talked about how there's four things that we're doing as a church to set up opportunities for you to go and to be the church. The church that is a community where people encounter Jesus and lives are changed forever. And so this weekend, it's estimated that we had over 400 people come out over two nights to a comedy event where they could encounter Jesus over some phenomenal calories and some amazing comedy. And I want to thank all the amazing volunteers who made that possible. I got to ask a few of the people, the long-standing attendees of our church, committed people in our church that were here serving as they were at the door with me greeting people, how many people they knew. And both nights, I had people who've been here a decade or more tell me that they didn't recognize more than 50% of the people that had come in. So that's awesome. That's why we did it. That's why we did it. We set up an opportunity for you to go and it was just a riot. Did it for that too. Today, church, today we're in week six, a message that I'm entitled Movement Over Monument. And we're going to investigate what happens if we take God at his word and we step into being a movement of God rather than building a monument for the godly. In Matthew chapter 25, where we're going to read today, I want to give us some context and culture because I believe that the more we understand context and culture, the better we are able to understand and apply the word of God to our lives. Matthew 25 is Jesus' last recorded sermon. Uniquely different, yet familiar to Jesus' very first sermon in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will be blessed. Jesus then goes on to demonstrate this throughout his ministry and he comes full circle now in his final sermon, his last recorded sermon, his final words and he says what we'll read here momentarily is about the blessing, the blessed and the blesser for being obedient to being called. You see church, 
regardless of the barometers of success, I believe that obedience to God is our success. That is where the blessing lies. Jesus, in his last sermon, is doing what he's done so often before in addressing the multitudes. He's, he's speaking in parables. He's speaking in stories that are common to man. And he gives a couple of parables before the one that we're going to discover today. The first one is that of ten bridesmaids getting ready for the bridegroom. And they've been encouraged to equip themselves for the bridegroom's arrival. To prepare their lanterns. Five bridesmaids take that preparation serious and they, they have extra olive oil on hand. But five bridesmaids apparently don't take the master at his instruction, and they come ill-prepared, and when their lanterns run dry of olive oil, their lights burn out. And there's a sense of urgency because the bridegroom is coming, and so they panic and they begin to ask the other five bridesmaids who were adequately prepared for some extra olive oil, but they look at their circumstances and they say, we don't have enough to give you because we brought what we, were, what we need for, for, for the, the preparation of the bridegroom to come. We encourage you to go to the store and, and, and to replenish your stock. And so these five in panic run off before it's too late and they try to purchase more olive oil and when they get the supplies that they need that they knew that they needed but were too uh, lazy to get or too distracted to get or procrastinated to get or whatever the cause was they come back and during their absence the bridegroom has come he's come in and he's met the other five bridesmaids and he's closed the door and locked it behind them and these women these bridesmaids they beat on the door desperate to get in and Jesus says depart from me I don't know you you see, I have a relationship with these five. I've been with these five. But, but you weren't here. You weren't prepared or ready for me. And then from that parable, Jesus moves right into another parable, another teaching opportunity, where he talks about three types of servants. A servant that he's given five talents to, a servant that he's given two talents to, and another servant that he's given one talent to. And he says, I'm going to be gone for a little while. And while I'm gone, I want you to do something good with these talents that I'm giving to you. I want you to be responsible. I want you to multiply these. I want you to do good with these. We learn that when the master returns, the three servants are brought before him. And the one with five talents presents a, an offering of double. He says, here, you gave me five and I invested it wisely and, and, and I used it appropriately. And now I have ten talents to give you. And he says, you know what? You're blessed. You were faithful with the little that I gave you, and so now it's going to be added to you. And what about the one with two? Come here. And the one with two comes forward, and he says, Master, you gave me two talents, and I invested it wisely, and I, I used it for, for good, and, and, and here you go. Here's four. And the master looks at the, the talents, and he says, good on you, young man. Good on you. I gave you two, and you were responsible. You added to it, so it's going to be added to you. The one with one talent comes and he has his gift and his talent and he blows the dust from him and he wipes it off because you see he had buried it in the dirt. And as he dug it up and he brings it, he, he unearths it and brings it to life again. He brings it before the master and he says, here master, here's the talent you gave me. You see master, I was afraid that you were a harsh master and that you, would, you, you wouldn't treat me fairly and so I just hid it so that nobody would steal it and so that I wouldn't lose it. And that master looks at this talent and he looks at the servant and he says, what have you done? I gave you every opportunity to do something good with what I've given you. And at the very least, you could have at least put it in the bank so that it could accrue some interest. But you've been lazy. 
and, 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 you, and you've been distracted and, and so you, you chose to do what you wanted rather than what I asked and you buried it. And so because of that, it won't be added to you. You're not counted among the faithful. Get away from me. And then Jesus, on the heels of those two parables, is going to introduce a third one. A third parable about a shepherd and his sheep and his goats. And so would you read with me from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning in verse 31. And we're going to work our way through verse 46 together today. But when the Son of Man, being Jesus, comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. What's taking place here? At first blush, it's easy to read right over this, but when we, when we investigate the scriptures further, we'll see a direct draw, a direct parallel, a line drawn between Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the prophet Daniel proclaims these things, and Jesus now, who is saying this is an embodiment, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that is to come. And what he's doing is he's introducing some eschatological ideas. He's introducing to his people that these are the things to come in the end times. He's preparing them in advance to be ready for the promise that will be fulfilled. He's giving us some insight into what eternity is going to look like. You see, he says, the Son of Man is going to come. And so we hold on to that promise, that second coming, that return. And not only will Jesus come, but he'll come with angels. And when he comes, he's going to gather us and he's going to sit upon his glorious throne, the highest honor, where he will be declared king above kings and lord above lords. And in verse 32, we read that all the nations will gather in his presence. All the nations represents no more Jew and no more Gentile. There is no more division between male nor female. There's no more separation between slave and free. This is no longer about denominational divides or theological opinions. You see, when Jesus comes and he gathers us all, all of us fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ unto himself, we're told that every nation, every tribe, and every tongue will come before the Lord and they will declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they will bow their heart and they will bend their knee to the one. And so we had better get comfortable with all kinds of people from all kinds of places and all kinds of backgrounds because the word of God tells us in moments that we'll read together that these are our brothers and our sisters, our co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. And if we get to spend eternity together, well, this is the dress rehearsal where we get to learn to like each other. He says all the nations will gather in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. Jesus is giving a parable, a modern day story that they're very familiar with. Shepherds would allow cohabitation of sheep and goats in the same pen. One shepherd would care for them all. One shepherd would direct them all. One shepherd would tend to all of their needs. One shepherd would give them 
their daily sustenance, what they needed, and protect them from the wolves and the other predators that would come to kill them. But when it came time to, to reap, that shepherd would go into the pen and he would separate the sheep from the goats. You see, the goats had little value, but the sheep, they had wool that they would shear and they would draw the wool from these sheep and they would use it for all kinds of good. And the position that Jesus mentions here, the right and the left, the position on the right for the righteous or the sheep is a position of honor. He says they will be separated one from the other. Though here, this side is what we should draw from this. Though this side of heaven, we cohabitate, we co-mingle, we walk amongst the same ground together. We are all cared for by the same God who looks after our daily sustenance. We recognize that good, bad, or indifferent, every breath that we draw in our lungs comes from the same God, the author and the perfecter of life. He cares for the good and he cares for the wicked. He allows us to cohabitate, but there will come a time, a time when we will be called into account for the good that we have, the good that we've done. And I want us to be really careful here because in moments we're gonna read what on the surface looks to be a theology of good works. That when we do enough, that we'll somehow be good enough. And that when we're good enough, we'll have a seat reserved for us at the table. Or we'll be like the disciples and say, Jesus, which one of us is going to sit at your right? Which one of us is going to sit at your left? And even our moms are going to get involved with Jesus. Remember my sons? Come on, Jesus. They've been good. They've done a lot of good for you. But I want us to be careful as we read this and look through the lens of the entire gospel. The entire life and story of Jesus. Everything we know of Jesus and everything we learn from the apostles thereafter is that we are saved by grace and not by works so that no man can boast among himself. But that it's not about the root alone. It's about the fruit that comes from being rooted. That when you're in Christ, you will bear fruit. So what we're gonna read isn't about being saved by works, but it's about the fruit that comes as a byproduct of your relationship with Jesus. And he says... He says, I'm going to separate these two. And then he says in verse 34, the king, now Jesus, king of kings, will say to those on his right, come, come to me, you who are blessed by my father. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of your works. But come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. This, this story is a story of completion. This is a story of regeneration. This is a story of realizing God's original intent for all of mankind. Where the new heaven and the new earth come. And we experience a life free of gnashing, a, free, a life free of weeping, a, a life free of sorrow, a life free of brokenness, a life free of, of, of sickness and, 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 and broken relationships. That we inherit eternal life as God had originally intended. He says, you come to me and my Father's going to bless you with this. You will inherit, you will be a co-inheritor with me and your other brothers and sisters, this kingdom that my Father has prepared for you from the creation of the world. In verse 35, we are now going to learn about six deeds, what we call deeds of mercy. Six specific things that Jesus points out. And we're going to come back to these. But he says, for I was hungry and you fed me. And I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Jesus gives six clear 
deeds of mercy, six very practical things that can be applied to our lives, that can be done for others. And again, this is about the fruit because of our roots. And he goes on, and here's what he says about the righteous ones. The righteous being those who are right of mind, those who are right of heart, those who are right of motives. And listen to their response. You see, I don't know about you, but if I'm standing before God, I know me enough to know that if he says, hey, Andrew, blessed are you for looking after those who were hungry. You fed them. I mean, it's a big task, Andrew, for you not to clear your pay. You left some for the others. Good for you, man. And hey, you gave somebody some water when they were thirsty. And not only that, but you, you, you clothed the naked and you, you invited the strangers into your home and you, you cared for the sick and you went and visited, you started a prison ministry. If I'm listening to Jesus say to me those things, my first response, this side of heaven, in my carnality is to say, yeah, buddy. I did do that, didn't I, Jesus? Thanks for taking notice. But listen to the righteous response. Listen to their motivation. Listen to their hearts when they say, as they bow before Jesus, then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and show you hospitality? Jesus, when did we see you naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you. You see, there seems to be some confusion amongst the righteous. They wish to do well. They wish to have done these things, but they don't recognize that it was Jesus that they were doing it for or to. And here's what Jesus says. And the king says in verse 40, I tell you the truth. And I would be remiss as your pastor if I didn't stop and help us bring to the surface a little bit of what Jesus is saying here when he says, I tell you the truth. Because he's going to mention it twice. He mentions it first to the righteous. Those who desire to do right. Those who have been rooted in Jesus and whose fruit has been evident in their lives. He says, I tell you the truth. The reason that Jesus stresses that what he's about to share with these righteous ones is the truth. Is because he recognizes that we live in a culture and in a context where lies are prevalent. Where we are taught false theology. Where we are taught false doctrine. Where we surrender ourselves to false teachers. We see this no more clear than we do in 1 Peter or 2 Peter. We see this in Romans. We see this in 1 Corinthians. This is an age-old problem, thousands of years old where we begin to adopt for ourselves the lies of our culture around us. The morals of man begin to tell the story of truth, which has become a relative truth. And that relative truth becomes a comfortable truth because regardless of where we're at, we can fit into it. But Jesus has a story. And Jesus has a statement. And he says, guys, regardless of what you've been told, regardless of those who've tried to mislead you, who've misappropriated my truth, who've misused my word and who've misused you. What I'm going to share with you is true. You see, because facts change, but the truth of God never does. And so here's the truth that Jesus shares in verse 40. He says, I tell you the truth. When you did it to the one of least of these, when you cared for the marginalized, when you clothed the misplaced, when you welcome in the misrepresented 
And when you meet the tangible needs of the mistreated, when you look after the least of these, the marginalized, mistreated, misrepresented, and misplaced, but he doesn't stop there. I want us to look even further at what Jesus is going to say. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Jesus, can we agree that Jesus could have used any identifying markers for these people? Yet, isn't it interesting that Jesus calls them his kin? My family folk. These are my brothers and my sisters. The marginalized, the ones who are on the other side of the caste system, the social misfits, the outcasts, the broken, the sick. You see, they're my brothers and sisters. And we need to look at no further than to investigate scripture time and time again, all the way back to Leviticus. When God instructs the farmers to leave some crop in the field for those to come after to glean from the, the harvest. Those who have no other means. So God has cared for the marginalized, the mistreated, the misplaced, and the misrepresented from the creation of time. And we're going to see here momentarily two meta narratives that, that come together yet again. The first being the meta-narrative of Jesus throughout Scripture and God's plan for all humanity. We're going to see that time and again from Genesis to Revelation. And I'll introduce the second meta-narrative here in just a moment. But here's what I want us to see is we don't need to look any further than the New Testament when we ask, okay, well, who are the least of these? Jesus identifies the least of these as the orphans and the widows. And the reason that these are the two examples are because orphans, orphans are those without a mother or a father. Orphans are those who don't have someone to care for them or love them. These are likely children. Children that, that don't have a means of survival on their own. They can't pull up their bootstraps and make their own way. So they have to rely on the, the good graces of their family or anybody else who will give them alms, who will care for them. Because they have nobody and I identify with that. I think we all identify with being an orphan in some way, shape, form, or facet. But church, can I tell you that I identify just a little bit more from a, from a personal perspective on what it means to be an orphan? Because at 16 years old, at 16 years old, I was plucked from the inner streets of Portland. And I was given an opportunity to experience new life. I was given a clean bed, and I was given quality food and I was giving something to drink and I was giving clothes to wear and I was giving I was, I was given a, a home to call my own by a family that chose to pull me out not only that I was given a new name and I began to form a new identity and I want to let you know church that it wasn't because of any one passage of scripture and it wasn't any one scripture that was read or a sermon that was given in such a unique way that caused me to come to conviction. It was because of the way that Bob and Shauna Anderson cared for the orphan that I came to encounter Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Because they opened their home to me, marginalized. Because they gave me food, me, mistreated. Because they gave a new representation of me who was misrepresented. And they gave me a place to call my own when I was misplaced. 
Jesus identifies the least of these as the orphans, but he doesn't stop there. Jesus draws another class of individuals. He says, and the widows. The widows are those who have lost their husband. The widows are those who have lost their husband's husband. And they are desperate for the next of kin to either come and be their kinsman and redeemer, to take them in as a wife, or to rely on the good alms and the good graces of others. Because women in this society, women in this culture, they were a possession. They were a property. They were literally obtained like an individual would obtain, uh, obtain a pet, like a dog. They didn't have social standing. They didn't have quality status. They didn't have equal rights. There wasn't arguing or complaining about women's wages versus men's wages because women relied solely on the men in their lives to care for their needs. And when they lost that individual to death, illness, war, whatever it was, they were at the desperate plea and cry and the, and, and the good graces of others that would care for their needs in a very practical and tangible way. And Jesus says, you righteous ones, you are blessed because you looked at the least of these, the marginalized, those that nobody else wanted, that nobody else would look after, and you fed them. You clothed them, and you gave them something to drink, and you gave them a home to call their own, and you cared for them when they were sick, and, 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 you, and you went to visit them. You met them where they were at. And because you did that, oh, and by the way, you didn't just do that to anybody. These are my brothers and sisters. You're blessed. Then here. Verse 41, Jesus, the king, seated on his throne, turns to the goats, those on the left, and he'll say, away with you, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. You see, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and I was in prison and you didn't visit me. But listen, listen, listen to the same reply but with some different motivation, okay? Listen to the reply that the goats give, the righteous give one response while the goats, the religious elite, those who think they've done it all on their own, those who've cared more about being a monument for the godly than the righteous for, the, for, for God, listen to their response, then they'll reply, Lord, when did, we, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty? I mean, when did we see you a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? Come on. Jesus, are you serious? You, you, you didn't need our help. Jesus, you're the only guy that we know that can turn a, a kid's happy meal into a 20-piece chicken nugget. You didn't need our help. You didn't need something to drink. You, you, you totally rocked it at the wedding in Cana. You turned water into wine. By the way, that was awesome, Jesus. When, when did we see you naked? Jesus, you always had nice linens on. When did we see you sick? I mean, can you even get sick? You're Jesus. And when did we see you in prison and not go? I mean, you were never in prison. Come on, Jesus, come on. The righteous who are rooted in God and desire to be godly, to do godly, to bear fruit, say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink, naked and clothe you? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you sick and care for you? When did we see you in prison and go and visit you? Father, help us understand this. 
And Jesus says, whatever you've done to the marginalized, the misplaced, the misrepresented, the mistreated, those are my brothers and sisters. It's though you've done it unto me personally. And the others say, Jesus, come on, really? When do we see that? And Jesus says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. That statement comes up a second time. Now Jesus is talking to a religious group. Jesus is talking to the wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, Jesus is talking to those who have put on a good God face and they have cared about building their godly monument. He's talking about those who were more concerned about their reputation than they were about the marginalized. They were more concerned about what they had than what others around them didn't have. Jesus was talking to a group who believed lies. Not only that, but they, the provocations of these lies, they would enable these lies. They would further uh, implore these lies to people. And the way that they would spin these lies, they would make people around them believe these lies. Jesus says, look, your truth changes, or your facts change, but my truth never does. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Whatever you've done to the least of these, oh, and by the way, you were doing it, those right there, those, those, that, you, those that you made go to a different, a different colony because they were sick and you made cast out, and every time they walked down the street, you made them scream out, unclean, unclean, those who were widowed and you, you forced them out, those orphans that you didn't want to get in your way to bother you, those that you cast out, that you misrepresented, that you mistreated, that you misplaced and that you marginalized, those are my brothers and sisters. And whatever you did to them, hey, listen, you're doing it to me. They're an extension of me. They're a part of my family. And how you care for them, well, it's the same as how you care for me. And I want to tell you, church, that this is taking on a whole new meaning for me. I want to share with you just for a moment about my life and what's going on with Stacy and I. You see, my son Caden is again at a place, we're at a crossroads where in the next two weeks, he's going to make what likely will be his final move from our home permanently, and he's going to move into a home in Kansas City to live with the host family. Now, I don't want to debate parenting and why we do what we do and what, what, what your opinion is versus our opinion. We have wrestled for years on this, and we knew that a time was coming that God has given our son a, a unique opportunity and a pretty special gift with soccer. And we made a promise to our son. We would do everything we could to keep our family together, but we promised him because he didn't ask to leave Minnesota to come to Nebraska. We said, buddy, we're going to do everything we can to help you realize your dreams of soccer, Okay. As long as our family comes first, we want to help you. And, and I will tell you, he's done everything he can to make it work here. But, but it just, it goes to show again that he, he, God's got something special that he wants to do through this kid's unique gift. And so Stacy and I made the hard decision and we called Kansas City and said, hey, uh, uh, he, he, they called us and recruited us again. They had us back out. And they interviewed Stacy and I and they said, what core values matter to you? What do you guys believe as a family? What, what's most important to you? And so as they interviewed us, we began to share our convictions, our core values, our habits as a family, the things we enjoy, the things that we don't tolerate, the things that matter to us, our rules, and, and the things that we love. And the homestay director began to call nine churches, I believe was the number, called nine pastors and said, hey, my name is such and such, and I represent a young man who's coming here to play soccer. His dad's a pastor. They're in a unique position, but we're just wondering if you have anybody in your church that meet these criteria. And they found what they believe to be a perfect host family. It's a, a, a Gerald and, and Mary, and they have five children, three who are out of the house and two who are still in the house, including a 14-year-old boy. 
And then the next two weeks, Stacy and I and our family are going to go down and meet him. But when we began to talk with them initially, do you know what we heard? We heard, look, it's not Caden that we're bringing in. We're bringing you all in. And when you come to visit Caden, you don't come by yourself, Dad. You bring your wife and you bring your girls. And I said, I have five girls. And they said, you bring them all. And I said, you're crazy. And they said, we know. <laughs> you see, we believe that Caden is an extension of your family and we're inviting him in. Therefore, we're inviting you in. And as difficult as it's going to be to have Caden with us about 50% of the time, you see, he'll come home about every other week for three or four days. We feel comfortable knowing that he's going to be at a, a family that takes him in as their own and, and have extended that to us. When Jesus says, hey, look, these marginalized, mistreated, misrepresented, and misplaced, these are my brothers and sisters. And when you, when, you, when you give them water and when you give them food and when you give them clothes and when you bring them in and you tend to them when they're sick and you visit them when they're in their prison, you're your extension of my family. You're doing it to me too. And he says, you guys over here, You've been more consumed with building a monument for the godly about your appearance and about how you look to others than you were about being a movement. And because of that, I tell you the truth, you were refusing me, verse 46, and they will go away. They will go into an eternal punishment, but the righteous, the righteous will go on and live for eternity. Imagine. Imagine, imagine if you, Country Bible Church, took God at his word. Imagine if you adopted for yourself the orphans and the widows, the least of these, the marginalized, the misrepresented, the mistreated, and the misplaced, as though they were an extension of Jesus himself. Imagine if you were more than a monument, if you cared more about being a monument, if you cared more about being a monument for the godly, or cared less and more about being a movement for God, if you cared more about being rooted in God and letting that fruit come to the surface, imagine if as a body of believers we gather together more than just to, to, to come together and hear an inspiring message or some great music or looking around at some great comedians or different things like that. Imagine if we came together as a community that truly believed that we were a community where people can come and encounter Jesus and their lives will be changed forever. Imagine. Imagine if we took God at his word and we chose to gather to exalt his name we chose to gather to encourage one another in a world full of individuals waiting to, waiting to criticize us. We came together to encourage. And we came together and we gathered to equip the saints so that we can become all the more fully devoted followers of Jesus. Imagine. Imagine if we were to take our salvation serious and we were to grow, grow individually and grow as a body, grow in our knowledge, grow in our understanding, and grow in our application. You see, because I believe that the, the, the unrighteous, the ungodly, that they care more about head knowledge than they do applied knowledge. And head knowledge build, uh, puffs up, but applied knowledge builds up. Imagine if we cared about how we grow. Imagine, church, if we were serious about giving if we took to heart what it means to be a church known for our radical generosity of leaving a footprint every time we step because of how we care 
for our community at large. Imagine, imagine if we took God at his word and we started to give and give sacrificially and give generously, give abundantly, give radically, and we started to give of our time. Imagine if we gave of our talents those things which God has given us. And imagine if we, for once, would identify those treasures as what they are. Monetary things this side of heaven, that which we cannot carry with us into eternity. Temporal, that which God has rewarded us and says, I am calling you to be a good steward. I have given you these to invest. And we took God at his word and we looked at what we could live off of and we were radically generous with the rest for caring for the orphans and the widows, for the marginalized, the misrepresented, the mistreated, and the misplaced. Imagine what would happen if we truly became a church that was all about giving, giving of ourselves, giving of our gifts. And sacrificially started giving. And church, imagine if we were a church that were to go. If we were to go into the highways and the country hills and the, the, the dirt roads and we were to intentionally go and lift up the branches of the, 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 the shrubs and the, 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 the bushes around us, the hedges, and intentionally seek to find and to share with urgency a sense to all those to come to the table. Imagine, imagine, imagine what God could do through you. Just imagine. Imagine moving away from being a monument where we celebrate the bricks and mortar and the pretty things of our pious religion. And we step into being a movement of God. We're living out a right relationship with Jesus. It means that we take him at his word and we do all that he says how would our world be different tomorrow? Imagine. Father, where we have not cared for the least of these, where we have neglected our responsibility and missed our opportunities, I ask you to forgive us. Holy Spirit, where we have been more concerned about being a monument than celebrating a movement and being a part of you in action, forgive us. Father, your word tells us that there's a harvest out there, and that harvest, the harvest is ripe, it's ready, it's loaded, it's plentiful. You also tell us that the workers, they aren't what they could be. But Father, I'm asking you that as we are obedient to you, I'm asking that you would send us into the harvest and that we would reap that harvest for you. Father, I'm praying for salvations today. I'm praying that the rest of this year and all of 2018 would bring more than any of us could ever hope or imagine. Father, I'm praying that you would do immeasurably more in us and through us as a community that is committed to encountering you and seeing lives changed than we ever could dream up or imagine. 
Father, and I pray that this movement would start with me and that each one of us would adopt this movement that you're calling us to and that you would use us to be conduit, to be, uh, to be light in darkness, to, to be uh, individuals who go and reap the harvest. All for your glory, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.